God has entrusted every Christian the privilege and the responsibility to being witnesses and doing priestly duties. Uh, the, the reformers called this the priesthood of the believers. The priesthood of the believer. Every Christian is called to teach another person the ways of Jesus. Make disciples. We can't make disciples without teaching somebody else how to follow Jesus. Okay, Every Christian is called to be a praying person. Someone who prays for others. Jesus is called the great intercessor. He's, he intercedes for us, as we'll look at today. God has called you and I to be ministers. And so let's have a paradigm shift around this particular thing in how we see church instead of trying to get everybody to come to this place. That'd be great if a lot of people showed up here. But the biblical model that I see in the New Testament is that the church went out there. To bring the kingdom. And disciples were made out there. And if, if we continue to have this mindset that the only way the kingdom's going to expand is get everybody to come to our church building, our space. The, the church is the people, by the way. Not this, not this building we meet in. If, if that, if that's our mentality, then we're going to be hindered from seeing the kingdom expand. But if we shift from a mindset that we have been entrusted by God to be ministers, priests, representatives, witnesses, everywhere we go, then we're going to see the kingdom expand. And you know, the people that we reach, they may not come here and that's okay because the kingdom of God is much bigger than City Church Garland. Okay, we're and we're a part of a global movement that God has has initiated historically, okay? And so each one of us are called to participate in that. And so I want to see us jump on this opportunity. Whatever doors the Lord's opening, let's let's get in there. And I love it when when our body does ministry and I don't have to do anything necessarily. I just see it happening. I'm like, "Go. Do it, guys. You're doing awesome." Cuz my I see my primary role as a pastor here is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to care for the saints and equip the saints, encourage the saints so that you guys can do the work of the ministry. Amen. This is something that I'm passionate about and I think it will be a game changer in our lives personally, but also for our church. If we'll change this mindset, have a paradigm shift concerning ministry. Every one of us is called to be a minister. So I'm going to start using verbiage like when I say a blessing at the end. I'm going to start using verbiage like, you're sent. Go be witnesses. or Stuff like that. Language like that. Let's have that mentality that everywhere we go, we carry with us the fragrance of Christ. We are witnesses for Christ in whatever realm of responsibility and influence God's given us. Amen? With that said, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to continue our series here. I'll be honest with you, this is a chapter that I haven't spent a whole lot of time in that I have a hunch that maybe many of you haven't spent a whole lot of time in Hebrews chapter 7. If I said Hebrews chapter 7, what comes to your mind? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Okay, good. You've been reading then. You have been reading through this series. Probably the most familiar verse that I that I committed to memory and have kept in my, in my heart is, is verse 25. That it speaks about Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession 
for his people. Okay? And, and he's gonna, he's gonna climax. I'm getting it way ahead of myself. He's gonna climax there. I'm very excited about getting there. But before we get to Jesus, we gotta talk about Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews spends a good amount of time talking about Melchizedek, not because it's all about Melchizedek. It's all about Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. And Melchizedek gives us insight, profound insight to the priestly role of Jesus, the eternal priestly role of Jesus, our great high priest. When you think of the word priest, what comes to your mind? Okay, intercessor, sacrifices, confession. Okay, yeah, so the Catholics, the, the former Catholics among us have this uh, this concept of confession. And, and, and so with that, you go to the confession booth. There's this, there's this separation between the priest and the people. Okay, there's this distance. And so while it may be helpful, somewhat helpful... If you have a Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopalian background, it may be helpful to have a concept of a priest. It also may be very unhelpful to, to, if you have that background when you think about the priesthood because there's this, there's this distance that we see within Catholic, not only distance, but also corruption within the priesthood. Roman Catholic priesthood and, and just throughout history, even back in the Old Testament, there, there tended to be corruption among the priests. And so there was a group of people that were jaded by the corruption and the compromise of the priest, uh, the Jewish priests of, of first century. And actually they, they, they formed, this group of people formed in about 100 B.C., and they, they, they withdrew from the priesthood, uh, that was functioning at the time. They withdrew from the people. They wanted to be set apart, holy, disciplined, like radical people seeking God. And the, the, the name for this group is called the Essenes. Okay. The, the Qumran community. They, 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 they withdrew from the, the regular folks and, and, and the, the priesthood that was going on. And they, they wanted a pure, they desired a pure, set apart priesthood. Okay. So they were expecting a Messiah who would come and, and fulfill those priestly roles excellently, purely, perfectly, right? They were looking for this Messiah who would be this priest. Now there was another group of people, another extreme group of people who were looking for the Messiah to come as this king, this conquering king. And, and they expected when Messiah come, came, he would overthrow the Roman authorities. He would conquer them. He would kill them. And, and by sword, by force, he would win. These, these group of people who gravitated towards that image, uh, concept of a Messiah were called zealots. Okay? Zealots. Now Jesus had some zealots rolling with him. Okay? You know, and, and, and there were some, there were some misconceptions and, and disappointment when, when Jesus did come on the scene, he came on the scene as this amazing priest king. And he didn't fulfill the expectations of the Essenes as they were looking for this priestly king because Jesus was hanging out with sinners. He wasn't following all the rules like the rest of the religious community was, so to speak. He was sinless. He was flawless. But the additional rules that the Pharisees created, the traditions of men, he wasn't following the traditions of the people. 
Jesus caught flack because the disciples weren't washing their hands and they were eating. Okay, right now, washing our hands is real important with coronavirus going around, right? Uh, but, but Jesus said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart from, from the inside. So anyways, so there was these Essenes who were looking for this priestly Messiah. There was these zealots who wanted this kingly Messiah who would overtake them by force, political and, and, and military might. And Jesus shows up and, and he, he's, he doesn't meet their expectations as the priest king yet. He came as the perfect Messiah that you and I needed. Though he didn't come like many expected him to come, he came as a lamb who would lay down his life. And he came humbly and he he did display power, but his power was displayed in a different way that the zealots expected him to display it. He healed people instead of killing people. He gave his life as a sacrifice instead of taking other people's lives with the sword. And so it was a different type of Messiah. And so so here in the book of Hebrews, the author is trying to give the, the, the people, the audience, a biblical perception of who Jesus is and how his priesthood is superior than, than the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. Okay, Uh, let's go ahead and and start here. We'll read Hebrews chapter seven, verse one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, it's up on the screen for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers. Through these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute That the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And all God's people said... Amen. And all God's people are wondering what is going on. What is he talking about? Okay. Um, now remember before, before he goes into this deeper dive on Melchizedek, he gives, he gives the audience a little heads up like, Hey, the meat, I suspect that you guys might not be ready for this. 
because you've developed a habit of not listening uh, very carefully, right? And so he, he gives them this loving exhortation, if you will, and, and confronts the immaturity in their ability to listen and comprehend or uh, listen and, and pay attention. It's not an intellectual issue necessarily. So he goes into this uh, dialogue about Melchizedek. And many of us are not familiar with Melchizedek. And so we're going to look at the Old Testament reference here that the author of Hebrews is referring to when he talks about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned only two times in the Old Testament. So we don't have a whole history of his life like we do with Joseph, like we do with Abraham, like we do with David. We don't have his genealogy. His mother and father were so-and-so. His great-grandmother and grandfather were so-and-so. He didn't have this genealogy recorded in Scripture He just kind of shows up on the scene in Genesis 14, okay, verse verse 17. It says, after his return from the defeat of Carolamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, take note of a couple things here. One is there was there was another king uh, mentioned here, and there there were other kings, but this this particularly this king of Sodom. And what do we know about Sodom later from later on in the scripture? We know of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a wicked city that God ended up bringing judgment on. Okay, and then we have this Melchizedek, who's called the he's the king of Salem, uh, and the author of Hebrews says by translation of his name he is. King of righteousness, king of righteousness. He resembles the son of God there. There he's, he's as theologians describe him. He's a type of the son of God, of of the Messiah. Some theologians even and some many Christians throughout history have even believed that that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Christ. I disagree and I'll we'll, we'll talk about why uh, later, but nevertheless, he was a type of Christ. He he reveals some things specifically about Christ priesthood that should encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. Something that's really important for us to grasp. Also notice that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't mention this, but I think it's significant to note because our king of righteousness brought out some bread and wine before he went to the cross. And when he established the new covenant, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay. And so these elements of, of bread and wine that we partake every week of in communion remind us of the everlasting covenant that we've entered into with Jesus Christ, with God Almighty. We are in covenant with him and his grace and his sacrifice is the basis and the sustaining element of that covenant. Amen. 
So notice here, this guy Melchizedek shows up. We don't have a genealogy about him. So there was an old uh, Jewish tradition that thought Melchizedek was Shem, one of Noah's sons. Because it wasn't too long before that. Noah lived a long time and perhaps his sons Shem was alive during this time. We don't know that for sure. He didn't, he was without mother or father or genealogy. Now I like how D.A. Carson points out that it wasn't, it wasn't literally that he was without father or mother, but it was literarily that he was without father or mother. We're not told in Genesis who his father and mother were. Literarily, he didn't have father or mother. And so this is what we do know about Melchizedek. He was king of Salem. Okay. Which the word Salem is, is closely connected to the word shalom, which means peace. It's the Hebrew word for peace. It's also connected to uh, when theologians think that Salem was Jerusalem. He was priest of the Most High God. He wasn't a polytheist who believed in many gods and worshipped many gods, which was common in that day. But this guy, Melchizedek, was he believed in one God. And he, he spoke, he, he blessed Abraham in the name of God. And he was a priest. So he was a king and he was, he was a priest. Like we'll see Jesus is. And, and by the way, you don't see that combination very often in scripture. Priest, kings weren't supposed to do priestly duties. And vice versa, right? When, when certain kings in Israel tried to do priestly duties, things went south. Like one guy tried to do something priestly duty and leprosy broke out on his forehead. Saul decided he was going to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. King Saul. And the prophet Samuel's like, God says through him, obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul gets the kingdom and his authority taken away from him because he was trying, he disobeyed God, trying to function as a king and a priest. And God didn't call him to that. He didn't give him the authority to do that, right? And so there's issues, but, but this guy Melchizedek was a king and a priest like Jesus. And so it points to this, this, uh, unique role and roles that, that Jesus himself has. He was the king of righteousness. So his name, there's, there's two parts to it there. Uh, Malek. Okay. And this is one of the few things I remember from taking a year of Hebrew. Uh, Malek means king. The second half of it, of, of his name, uh, comes from the root word sadek, which means righteousness. So literally, the author of Hebrew says, by translation of his name, he was a king of righteousness. And this is in contrast, by the way, in Genesis 11 to the king of Sodom. He also received tithes from Abraham. This is interesting. Like, I, as I'm reading this, I'm like, who even told Abraham to give him tithes? Like, what's going on there? Kind of like with Noah, who told Noah to offer up a sacrifice after the flood, right? And so, so tithing goes all the way back, first mention of it in the Bible, all, all the way back to Abraham before the law. Okay? Which is interesting to note, because in the law, God, that God gave Moses to give to the Israelites, God commanded his people to give a 10% of all their increase for the purpose of supporting the Levitical priest so that the priest can do the sacrifices, minister to the people on behalf of God and minister to God on behalf of the people and be this 
mediator between God and man. They would take care of the tabernacle and the temple. So God ordained that the priest, because they, the Levite priest, they didn't have an inheritance like everybody else. They weren't able to go and do the, the farming work and, and, and get the increase from all that, like, or, or whatever work it was, like everyone else was. So God set it up that there would be a tenth given to the priest to support them so that they can continue to keep, perpetuate God's name being honored and people connecting with God and worshiping God in a way that was appropriate. And they would offer up sacrifices. They had a messy job. They had a hard job. I mean, they, people were bringing pet lamb so-and-so every year. I mean, there were, there were annual sacrifices, daily sacrifices, and it was bloody. It was messy. There was sinfulness. There was brokenness. There was, it was a messy job. So anyways, they were supported by the tithes. He received tithes from Abraham and then he blessed Abraham. Okay. So these are some of the few things that we do know about Melchizedek. And we'll move on because we want to talk about Jesus here. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it, people received the law. What further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a charge in the pre, a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. So Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So there's an issue here. So so the Jewish Christians have to make sense of this. Okay, so Jesus is a priest. Well, he wasn't a Levite though. What's up with that? So he was from the tribe of Judah in connection with what the tribe, with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, we'll go on. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Okay, now there's there's one reason why I don't think that this was a pre-incarnate, Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Christ. Because Hebrew says he, he was a priest who was in the likeness of Melchizedek. So the connection that the, the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that Melchizedek and Jesus, there was a, they were alike in, in regarding the priesthood. Who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he quotes Psalm 110, and this is one of the most favorite quoted Psalms in the New Testament. Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, it was hands down agreed that this Psalm was a messianic Psalm. It was referring to the Messiah who would come. When some of the religious leaders of Jesus's day tried to trip him up, he said, let me ask you a question. Who was David talking about when he said in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. They didn't know how to answer that. They were like, uh, we need to, we need to study that a little bit more, right? They didn't have a good answer because this is, this is David, King David. Who says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my your footstool. So this is a kingly royal psalm that speaks about the Messiah as king. 
And when he came as into the world and he started his ministry, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. The kingdom is here. So prepare the way, prepare your hearts, turn from your sins, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Verse two, it says in Psalm 110, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. Notice the kingly language here. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Can you see where the zealots were were like... This this is our verse right here, all right? Messiah King, right? Jesus was indeed a king. Now, he is going to come back and bring judgment and execute judgment in a very powerful way. But when he first came, he displayed his power by healing people, not destroying lives, by giving his life, not taking lives, right? Big idea is this. Jesus has a priesthood that is superior to the Levitical priesthood. As our priest king, he leads us powerfully and permanently and perfectly. Okay? The first thing here is that Jesus is our powerful priest king. Okay? Look at verse 17 there. Okay, verse 16. He's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So so according to the law as a Levite, not according to that. But on, the, but by the power of an indestructible life. This is referring to the resurrection. The grave couldn't hold him. God confirmed and put his stamp of approval on Jesus. And even before he started his ministry, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus lived a life perfectly flawless before the Father without sin, without any stain of corruption. And he went to the grave for us and he tasted death for us. And by the power of God, he rose from the dead. Jesus has an indestructible life. Okay, so he's superior. He is superior to the to the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, because he doesn't die like the rest of the priests do, and then you got to get a new priest. Like maybe you get lucky and, and you get you get blessed and you get a good priest who really loves the people, loves God. He's really he's not corrupt, and then he gets old and dies, and then you got to you got to get another one. Like what do you do? Like gosh, we need somebody who's going to like be here and not die on us. And somebody who's not going to compromise and somebody who's not going to be corrupted like, like Eli's sons who slept around and, and he was, they, they were doing some corrupt things. Uh, and, and first Samuel, uh, speaks about those guys, right? And so, but, but Jesus is this powerful priest king whose life was indestructible and also he was our permanent priest king. The scripture says, and it says it over and over here, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Go down a little bit further. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. 
And remember, perfect is a key word that the author of Hebrews goes back to over and over and over again. Okay? How do we experience perfection? Okay? Because the, the law couldn't do it for us. And it's not that the law was bad. The author of Hebrews isn't arguing that the law is bad. He's arguing that there is a better covenant. There's better promises. There's a better priesthood. And Jesus brings that to us. Okay? Y'all wake on me. I know you lost an hour of sleep last night. I did too. Okay? And I know we're talking about Melchizedek on this Sunday. It's relevant. Believe me. And I'll try to help us see this here shortly. Amen? Verse 19, so the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See, one of the things that happened in in the old covenant is that if you were dirty, you got to stay distant from God. You can't get close. If you're unclean, get out. Okay? It was to protect the community from getting coronavirus, if you will, right? It was quarantining the people. If you're, if you're defiled, if you got the virus, stay away. Don't shake our hands. Don't, don't get me corrupted with it. And see, the problem is, is that we've all been infected with the virus of sin. And we need something greater than the law. The law is insufficient to clean us eternally and to clean us thoroughly. But the blood of Jesus, as the author will argue, is sufficient. It's the perfect sacrifice for our sins and he is the perfect high priest he is our permanent priest he's not going away his life is indestructible he died he was dead for three days but on the third day he got up out of the grave so he's not gonna leave us like the other priests have left us and we got to get a new one every so often his priesthood carries on throughout all eternity because he has an indestructible life He's our permanent priest. And now we can draw near. Okay? Now you and I, we don't have to be dirty and distant in our sin. There's many, many Christians who struggle with this mentality of trying to serve God with an old covenant mentality. And it's that dirty and distant mentality. Like, if I, if I didn't measure up to the spiritual disciplines, then I can't come close to God today. He's not gonna listen to me today. And, and we gotta break through that legalistic mindset where, where we're approaching God on the basis of the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ, not on our righteousness and not on our efforts and merits. We have been given a way and access to God to draw near to God because of what Jesus has done on our good days and on our bad days. So we don't have to shrink back and we don't have to not go to church. And, and when, when we, when we've blown it, actually we need to go. We need to draw near. When we feel condemned and guilty and ashamed of our actions and of our lives, we come boldly before the throne of grace, the scripture tells us. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus is our permanent high priest. Verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor. Of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's our priest, eternal priest. He's our 
only king forever. And he's our perfect high priest. Verse 25. Here's my favorite verse in the chapter. And I think the author climaxes here. I think he goes through Melchizedek so he can get here. This is where he wants to get us. And he's going to take us even further in, in chapter 10. And he's going to describe in chapter 9 and 10 the sacrifice. In chapter 8, the, the, the better covenant that we now have. This everlasting covenant. This, this perfect covenant that Jesus has established. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. And then for those of the people. Since he did not once. I'm sorry. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So he was sinless. So he, he didn't need a sacrifice for his own sins. And he became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He became the perfect sacrifice for our sins once and for all. And so we don't add to what Jesus has done in sacrificing for our sins. The work is finished. And it, it's an offense towards God. When we try to earn our salvation and status before him by the things that we do. Let me give you a sacrifice so you'll love me and accept me. Now the author of Hebrews isn't opposed to New Testament sacrifices. We'll see in chapter 13. Christians are supposed to give some sacrifices. But it's not for our sins and for our salvation. It's a response to God already given us salvation through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And the sacrifices that Hebrews will get us to in verse 13, 15, he says, it's the sacrifices of praise. It's the sacrifices of sharing what you have with others. Sacrifices with which God is well pleased. Romans 12, 1 talks about the sacrifice of our bodies. Okay, another sermon. I'll save it for another time. Um. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. He's our perfect high priest. Verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Now let's look at this here. Here's Here's a list. His priesthood is superior. He offers us a better hope. He guarantees us a better covenant. He is able to save us completely and eternally. He always intercedes for us. Y'all hear me? Are you listening? He is holy, innocent, unstained, set apart from sinners, exalted. His sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. He is the perfect son and priest. This should ignite worship and passion in our hearts. And it should give us confidence concerning our salvation and our relationship with God. Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenant. I love this in verse 22. We like it when we purchase something and there's this seal on here. Satisfaction, guaranteed, right? Or your money back. There's certain places like Costco. If you don't like it, you bring it back. We'll give you a refund. Now, don't take advantage of that. Eat half of it and then bring it back because just because you're trying to mooch off Costco. 
They give free samples if you want free samples. Just go enjoy those free samples, right? We like things that are guaranteed, that we can, that are trustworthy. Things that when they're made, they last. They endure. Things that, that are of good quality. And Jesus is that guarantor of a better covenant. When my wife and I were, were dating, uh, and got engaged, I gave her a ring and proposed, which, uh, which she's not wearing today. I don't know why she's not wearing it today. <laughs> my wife forgot to, we were leaving this morning. She's like, where's my rings? I went looking for the rings. We were already late. Kevin was already singing up here. Where's my rings? It's all right. We got Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. No. And we're secure in our covenant. Though these rings are symbols of that covenant we've entered into. And, and I was saying by purchasing that expensive ring that, that I uh, proposed to her with, I was saying, I'm committed to you and I'm asking you to come into a, a covenant with me and be committed to me and us have this lifelong marriage relationship together. And my ring was a seal of that commitment, that guarantee. I'm in. I'm all in. All right. Because I've spent all my money on that ring. <laughs> I'm all in. And Jesus gave his entire life for us. What he did for us was not cheap. It was very costly. And he gave himself for us that we might be his bride eternally. That the church of God might be his Bride. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. He also li ever lives to make intercession for us. Here's the reason why we can have great confidence. And, and, and here's the reason that Jesus can save to the uttermost completely and eternally. One, his sacrifice is sufficient. It's enough to eternally wash away sins. There's no need for any more sacrifices once and for all. The Lamb of God who was slain. Before the foundation of the world. Jesus our Messiah. Okay. But also he ensures the guarantee. That he assures our salvation. And he holds us. And he keeps us by interceding for us. The theologian F.F. F. Bruce says it's important to emphasize this. For the character of our Lord's intercession has at times been grotesquely misrepresented in popular Christian thought. He is not to be thought of as an ornate standing ever before the Father with outstretched arms with the figures of mosaics and the, of the catacombs. And, and with strong crying tears pleading our cause in presence of a reluctant God. But as a throned priest king asking what he will from a father who always hears and grants his request. Amen. The father hears Jesus's prayers and he answers Jesus's prayer. So when Jesus asks the father for something, we can be confident that his prayers going to be answered. He ever lives to make intercession for us. The author of Hebrews has also mentioned the intercession of Jesus in Hebrews 5, 7. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus and the Father had this perfect relationship that didn't get broken by sin. Paul points to this intercession in Romans 8:34. He describes Jesus as one it says verse 34, who who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If you don't believe in the security of your salvation, Christian, then read Romans 8, 29 through 34 and wrestle with what Paul means there. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his people. We get a little sample of this in Luke 22, 31, 32. He told Peter, Simon, Peter, that is Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus wasn't surprised by Simon's failure. He knew he was going to fall. But Jesus had his back. And Jesus got your back. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So if you don't know anybody else in this world that's praying for you, you can be confident that you have a Savior who's praying for you right now. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. He got you. Chapter 17 of John, we get a little snapshot into Christ's intercession ministry, intercessory ministry. He, some of his petitions are, verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world like the Essenes, but that you keep them from the evil one. I want them to be in the world, to be witnesses, but not of the world. Keep them from the evil one. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe. That's you and I. So in this moment in the garden, Jesus was praying not only for his immediate disciples, but he was praying for you and I. Have you ever thought about that? Over 2,000 years ago, when our Savior walked this earth in one of the most difficult times, most stressful times of his life, he was thinking about you and I. And he prayed a prayer to the Father about you and I. I pray for these, not, not these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And Jesus is perfectly holy and flawless. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Now, Jesus, Jesus was called a friend of sinners because he would hang out with them. But he didn't compromise and he didn't allow their sinful practices to influence him. It was the other way around. He influenced them. Jesus wasn't contaminated by being around unclean people. He actually healed and cleaned unclean people by being around them. He influenced his atmosphere and those around him rather than being influenced by the world around him. So he's this holy high priest, yet humble and yet down the earth, yet relational, yet you and I can draw near. He's not distant from us because we're dirty. He's made a way to clean us. And he says, come close, come close, draw near. That's why this makes sense. And that's why this text is relevant to us. You and I can draw near. It says it at least twice here and in many more times in Hebrews. Draw near, drawing near would be an appropriate title for this series. One of our, uh, Danny had suggested that we use drawing near because he talks about this and he talks about throughout this book why we can draw near and how Jesus has made a way for us, a new and a living way 
for us to draw near. He's exalted above the heavens. We need a paradigm shift. Just like those who first heard this needed a paradigm shift. And, and maybe ours needs to be shifted in a different way. But when Jesus came, he, he was calling people to change the way they think in various ways about the kingdom of God, about life. He says, if you want to be great, be the servant. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself. If you want to live, die. And so you got this upside down kingdom, this paradox kingdom. And so we need a paradigm shift. In 1962, American philosopher and historian of science, Thomas Kuhn, published The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, a work that sent shockwaves through modern academia and provided modern culture with the concept of a, quote, paradigm shift. Kuhn suggested... Basically, that scientific investigation and knowledge depend on social structures. Analyzing the Copernican revolution, he showed that in the subsequent eras, normal science has carried out based on a paradigm or a viewing reality that dominates thinking. Revolutionary science, on the other hand, shifts the paradigm, bringing a new, a truly new way of viewing reality. Kuhn's concept, quote, paradigm shift, had been applied to many, some suggest too, far too many, disciplines and areas since his work appeared, including the areas of education and business. The revolution from mechanical to digital systems and watchmaking provides a classic illustration. Early in the 20th century, the Swiss dominated the watch industry. The, the, then one of their own engineers invented a new way of making watches based on digital technology. But executives of the Swiss watch industry failed to realize the potential of the new technology, dismissing it in a passing fad. The new approach to watchmaking was snatched up by the Japanese, who took a firm hold on the market. The shift of the market share to the east was resulted in economic devastation for the swiss industry why the collapse of the swiss watchmaking empire its leaders were not able to shift paradigms the truth of digital technology was foreign to those executives with the power of making decisions since they had lived for so long within a mindset of swiss superiority in watches there were many Jews of the day who had a hard time shifting from old covenant to new covenant paradigm shift. And even today, there's many Christians who continue to have a hard time shifting from old covenant to new covenant. And they need to. You need to, for your own good, make that shift. Because going back to that old type of watches like uh, having an iWatch, like my wife has, Apple Watch. <laughs> having an Apple Watch and going back to the two hands. Right. She can with her Apple watch, she can monitor her heart rate. She can get text messages and emails and email. She can know where I'm at. There's many things that she can do. I think the Apple watch is much better in many ways. There may be uh, some some cons to it as well uh, and distracting. But even more importantly, the new covenant is much better. Jesus is better, and the author of Hebrews is going to argue over and over and over again that Jesus is better. He has a better priesthood, a better covenant, better promises, a better hope, 
And now you and I can draw near. So how does this apply to us? We can draw near with confidence to God. We can come close. We can come to him with confidence. We can have relationship with him. All this stuff about Melchizedek, it may hurt your brain trying to figure it out. And Christianity does call us to think, to love God with all of our mind. It's not just the heart religion. It's not just a heart movement. It's, it's a head and heart. You know, it's not just one or the other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And so there's deep theological truths that God wants us to get in Scripture. And He wants those truths to ignite love and passion for Him and strengthen our relationship with Him. Amen? So the other thing is be confident of His saving and keeping power. He ever lives to make intercession for you. No one can snatch you out of His hand. He gots you. While the author of Hebrews is going to tell us, hold fast and hold on, and we do, we hold on to our Lord. We hold fast in faith and hope. But you know what? Sometimes we get weak, and we slip and we drift. But even when we do so, he's holding on to us, and his grip is stronger and greater, and he's not going to let go. When I'm walking with my kids through a parking lot or through a busy, uh, dangerous area, I got a grip on their hands and they, they may try to let go and take off running, but I'm not going to let little justice run out in the street when I got his hand, right? I'm going to pick him up by his hand and he can try to let go and run, but I got him, right? And that's, that's just, I'm an earthly dad. I'm not flawless and I'm not all powerful and not all knowing. God is, I have flaws and failures and weaknesses, but Jesus doesn't. He's a perfect, permanent high priest to us powerful high priest lastly be assured of what you have in christ that it's better than the old covenant the author says don't go back why would you go back to something that's inferior and and give up everything that christ has offered us through the new covenant if you guys would bow with me in prayer lord would you ignite our hearts with passion and confidence in the saving work of Jesus. Would you help us to engage in the priestly work of intercession. Knowing that Jesus our intercessor is praying for us. May we be an extension of Christ's ministry. His hands and his feet. May we really walk out the ministry of reconciliation. Imploring people on your behalf, God, imploring them to be reconciled with you because of what you've done and you call them to. We thank you for reconciling us. We thank you for forgiving us. We thank you for securing our salvation, guaranteeing our salvation. May we live like it is a guarantee. May we live with boldness, with confidence, And all that Christ has done, that his sacrifice is perfect, that his ministry of intercession is ongoing for us, even through the darkest of times. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. 
A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me then depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. Who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by His blood, my life is here with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you. May he give you his peace. Now go and be witnesses for Christ and carry his fragrance everywhere you go this week.